And about all 50 of the steelworkers showed up. We picketed for a while, and then they all marched into the Kroger's. They filled up their baskets overflowing with ice cream on the bottom row, and they walked up to the checkout line, and they abandoned their carts, and they walked out singing Solidarity Forever. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. (laughs) Welcome to Fight Back Radio, production of fightbacknews.org, taking you to the heart of the people's struggle. Our guest today is uh, John Melrod, who uh, wrote a book called uh, Fighting Times. And um, I think I think you'll enjoy this. It's uh, it's something different. It's uh, John was uh, active uh, in uh, the auto workers union, but also, uh, you know, in Wisconsin and different factories uh, in the late 70s and early 1980s. And he talks about uh, that time. And I think there's a lot of, besides just basic history, there's a lot of lessons to it. Uh, he writes the book in a way that's uh, it's first person. It's very exciting about some of the risks he took uh, and uh, how he built alliances and things like that. Um, he also talks a little bit uh, about his uh, days as a student radical in Madison and growing up uh, on the East Coast in uh, D.C. But um I want to uh, um, also say, you know, the the United Auto Workers, uh, which is a little bit of a center of the book, uh, the union that represented the workers at uh, American Motors and also does at, uh, you know, many of the auto factories here in the United States even today. Um, he, you know, he raises some of the issues that were, uh, you know, were, were going on back then. Um, and, uh, you know, the issues of, uh, you know, uh, different, you know, the auto uh, workers union was uh, a key union. It was like it set the trend for all uh, workers that uh, were unskilled by that. I mean, people that aren't in the the building trades or tool and dyes or whatever, people that worked in factories, just ordinary workers in this country, they were the, the highest paid and they were seen as the ceiling. So when they made gains, everybody made gains. And when they took hits, everybody took hits. And John talks about when they had this uh, fighting uh, class struggle approach, um, how the gains that they made. But he also alludes to, uh, you know, some uh, of the more conservative forces in the union, not just, not often, you know, just political, but uh, economically that weren't willing to fight. You know, he talks, uh, he doesn't speak glowingly of Walter Ruther. He talks about the compromises he made. And there was uh, guys like uh, Douglas Frazier and uh, um, and uh, Majerus in, in, in Wisconsin who, who made deals that, uh, uh, you know, he thought uh, at that time and, and does even today that we should have fought uh, fought harder and we shouldn't have uh, collaborated. Uh, I mean, the auto industry, m- many of the jobs have been uh, moved overseas or automated. And, uh, you know, the, the union itself has, has, has just, you know, went into a free fall to the point where it was just a cesspool of uh, corruption and uh Recently, um, Sean Fain was elected president of the United Auto Workers. And this is a, a new hope, I think, uh, for, uh, for auto that, uh, we can, uh, you know, potentially, you know, Sean is talking about, uh, let's take on the big three, Chrysler, Ford, General Motors. Let's, uh, let's bring dignity back to this union that was once, uh, you know, the, the, the star of the, uh, in the mid 20th century of, uh, industrial unionism of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. 
And uh, you see, we're seeing a similar thing in the Teamsters. You know, Sean O'Brien uh, taking over the helm there and saying, "Look, we're going to challenge UPS. We're going to try to do some things there." So, it's an exciting time in the labor movement in the United States, uh, and we'll see. Uh, you know, we'll see how these things play out. Uh, uh, but it's, uh, I think, uh, John Melrod's book uh, and uh, this interview, which I think you'll really enjoy, um, talks about you know how you know, possibly you could do some of this. Um, also, I just wanted to say, uh, just a maybe full disclosure, I met John Melrod <clears throat> back in the 19, late 1970s, maybe a third of the way through his book. Um, I'm a little bit younger than him. I was a college student at the time. Um, but uh, John and his comrades in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin, um, you know, I, I, as I met them, they, they, they taught me uh, the importance of the working class, of working class organization and, and, and being willing to fight. But also the importance of uh, what they called the national question, which was uh, you know you know fighting for the rights, you know the democratic rights uh, and economic rights of uh, oppressed peoples, black people, you know brown people, etc. And uh, uh, and that the, how that's central and how that fits into a, a working class struggle, and, and that comes out in the book too. Uh, I went with John and some others to uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, to fight the Ku Klux Klan in the late 1970s. It was a uh, it was a scary moment in some ways, but uh, but it was it, it, it taught me a lot. Um, so I think this is an interesting interview. Uh, I think the book is a great book. Uh, so uh, uh, enjoy the interview, and uh, if you agree with me at, at the end, I'd, I'd encourage you to buy the book. So here's uh, John Melrod. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Jonathan Melrod, uh, who just wrote a book uh, called uh, Fighting Times. And uh, John, I know. Um, you know, uh, you know, reading the book, you know, you, you, you grew up in uh, uh, D.C., I think, and went to high school at a, at a relatively nice high school in Vermont, went to school in uh, Madison, University of Wisconsin. But the book is about you working uh, at a number of factories, some per pretty nasty factories in Milwaukee. So how did, you know, uh, you know a well-educated guy, you became a lawyer later on, uh, end up uh, uh, at, at these factories in Milwaukee and then later in uh, Kenosha? Well, that's a good question, and it's a question my kids have asked me many times. I, you know, in 2004, I was diagnosed with uh, terminal pancreatic cancer and only given six months to a year to live. And my kids were seven and 10 at that point. And I told the surgeon after the surgery, and he gave me that prognosis, I said, I'm, just, I'm not going to leave my kids behind. And he said, well, I got to tell you to put your affairs in order. And I said, no way, I'm not leaving. And what I realized, my kids started saying to me, Dad, why did you work in these dangerous factories that are now about to kill you? So the question, the reason I started writing the book way back in 2004 was to answer the questions my kids had asked, because if I was going to leave this earth, I wanted them to at least have an understanding of why their father was willing to devote himself to this, this fight for the working class and that it made sense for me to do what I did. And, you know, so that was, you know, now luckily they're 28 and they're 25 and they get it. So it's been a good process. But, you know, I grew up, like you said, in Washington, D.C., and D.C. back in the 50s was really an apartheid-like city. I mean, the, diff the, the, the schism between black and white was almost like there was a fence around neighborhoods. And 
as a young kid, I used to observe things like when we went driving in Virginia and there'd be a black chain gang, you know, and, a, and big, white, overweight guys with shotguns on horses. And, I, you know, you look out the window as a kid and you go, you know, something's puzzling about that. But really what first, I think, made me the most aware of the level of racism that existed in the area and in the city was when the students from Howard University in 1960 tried to integrate the Glen Echo Amusement Park. And the white racists came out from the woodwork, you know, very violent, you know, beating up on the on, on the students who were picketing and trying to keep the amusement park desegregated. And in fact, they threw bleach into the pool so nobody could use it. And as a kid, I was like, well, what, you know, why can't black kids, it's 100 plus degrees in D.C., and why can't they swim with us? And that lesson, as I've looked back, carried me through a lot of my politics and a mm -hmm. lot of yeah. emphasis I always put on fighting racism and fighting white chauvinism. You know, from joining SNCC in 1965 as a 15-year-old after the uh, uh, Goodwin, Cheney, and Schwerner were murdered by the KKK. That's down why in I, Mississippi, yeah, down in Mississippi, the police had arrested them and then released them to the KKK. Oh my God! Yep, yep. And after that, I said, you know, they're they're my age, they're you know almost. And I worked at, in the basement of the SNCC office, sending out thousands of letters, you know, informing people about what had happened and raising money for SNCC. And those lessons stuck with me, you know, through college and through taking a job in in a factory. But your question was, why did I go into a factory? And that's I think it's important to understand that in that period of the political movement on campuses, there was a large contingent of us after Students for a Democratic Society split in 1969 who were looking for an alternative. And the alternative we chose was to follow the ideology of the Revolutionary Youth Movement Two, RIM Two, it was called. And there were really two planks. One was support for the Black Panther Party. And the other was believing that going into the working class, going into the military to fight the Vietnam War, were the ways that we could go from the campus to a much larger, broader sector that we needed to influence if we were going to really try and change systemic capitalist exploitation. So there were quite a group of us from Madison who moved to Milwaukee and went to work in quite a few industrial factories doing similar organizing at that time. So, okay, so you had uh, the anti-racist thing, I get. So you, but you, 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 you saw, you know, when you went to Madison, the University of Wisconsin, there was a huge anti-war movement. You cover some of that in your book and some of the, you know, issues with the, you know, fighting the police and some of the radical things that were going on. But uh, you, this rim too came to the view, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, that we need to, that the working class is a motive force for change. And so, you know, like a lot of people would say, I'm anti-racist, I'm going to, 
you know, whatever, uh, you know, go, uh, you know, do, you know, middle class things and try to influence it that way. You, you did something very, very different. You went into some, you know, pretty nasty factories. Uh, you know, eventually you ended up at American Motors and we'll talk about that. But, um, uh, you know, and just to try to influence the working class and try to, you know, what am I right here? Try to motivate them to be the, the force for change in our world. Yeah, no, you're you're 100 percent right. And there's a little bit of a backstory that might make it a little clearer why I decided to go into the working class. I, I used to work for the United um, United Workers, which was an Mexican-American union that we were hoping would be affiliated with the United Farm Workers in California. And we were working in Wisconsin, organizing the union in the canneries and in the fields of Wisconsin. And we were invited to speak to the School for Workers in Wisconsin, which was a school for stewards and rank and file activists to come learn more about the history of unionism and how to, you know, create a more, you know, fighting, fighting union. And the leader of the uh, our union, Jesus Salas, spoke to a group of steel workers, about 50 of them who were there at the School for Workers. And I walked into the room and there were all these big guys with crew cuts, which kind of in those days distinguished you, made you me feel as a young kid like, uh oh, who are these guys? They're all got to be conservatives, rednecks. And they all had nylon jackets and beer bellies. And after Manuel finished speaking, one of them put up his hand and said, Brother Salas, we're going to show you how steel workers do it. I make a motion that we join your picket line at Kroger's Grocery, where we were boycotting grapes to support the farm workers strike out in the fields in California. And about all 50 of the steel workers showed up. We picketed for a while and then they all marched into the Kroger's. They filled up their baskets overflowing with ice cream on the bottom row and they walked up to the checkout line and they abandoned their carts and they walked out singing Solidarity Forever, the traditional oh union yeah. anthem. And one line, of that song, <laughs> one line of that song changed my thinking. And that was, we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. And I said to myself, hey, this is some pretty radical shit. You know, I mean, these guys may not just be what I thought they were. There may be a lot more to this. So that was kind of the incentive in a way that set me in that direction, you know, irregardless of the other the rest of the student movement that I felt very strongly that workers had, as you say, were a motive force for being able to change society. So. Um, that's fascinating. That's inspiring, actually, too. But uh, let, let me ask you, I want to move ahead, though. Uh, to so, Okay, so you, you and your comrades, you moved to Milwaukee. Um, you, did you guys have a, a plan of, okay, we're going to do this or that? Or you just started, you know, how, how did that look? I mean, uh, you were, you know, probably in your early 20s at that time or mid-20s. Uh, um, what, 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 uh, what was the early days uh, when you arrived in Milwaukee? What did that look like? Well, actually, I was only 21. Um, okay. But, you know, we, our plan was as simple as get jobs in industry. You know, it, it was not more than that. And when you get the job, organize. 
So you had to sort of find your own way. We didn't have any veteran, you know, leftists or revolutionaries mm-hmm. to guide us. So we landed jobs in whatever factory we could get hired in. My first job was in a small uh, plastic fabrication plant where we were making the paint, the handles for paintbrushes and paint trays for Sears and Roebuck. And when when you stamp out a paint tray, you have to put oil on the metal before the dye hits it so it doesn't stick to the dye. To get that grease off of the trays, they have to run through a vat of trichloroethylene. And one day, the my straw boss said to me, hey, Juan, he was a Chicano guy. He says, you know, I got a bad job for you today. I said, what's that? He says, you got to clean the pit. And I'm, and I'm looking over, there's a barrel of trichloroethylene with a skull and crossbones on it. And I'm like, okay, dude, where's, you know, my breathing equipment and my, you know, my clothing equipment. And he says, that's for sissies. Oh my gosh. That was my first challenge. I mean, as a student, you could take a pass, you know, and, and, you know, not finish the assignment. But if I felt like I was going to join the working class, I had to do what other people had to do on a daily basis. So I jumped down into the pit and I'm sweeping fast and the particles are all going through the air and I'm getting dizzy and I'm feeling nauseous. So I hop out every 30 seconds to try and get air. And I later learned that you can get trichloroethylene poisoning, just like alcohol poisoning, where Mm -hmm. you pass out and you can't breathe anymore. Later in life, when I got cancer, the surgeon traced it to exposure to trichloroethylene. And again, at American Motors, years later, I was working around trichloroethylene and the union was battling to get it out of the shop floor. And, it, you know, the company would rather just use it because it was the cheapest, easiest solution. And that's why I call the book not just Fighting Times, but fighting times organized on the front lines of the class war, because we're really engaged in a class war. To American Motors, to Easy Painter, the first place I worked, they didn't care what the trichloroethylene was doing to you. They were about profits and production. And that's the nature of capitalism. They don't care about your health. They don't care about your well-being. And they don't really care if you don't have enough money to feed your family. So. That's why I think to understand that we're involved in a real class war is very important for people because, I mean, look at, you know, Howard Schultz at Starbucks, who was grilled the other day by Bernie Sanders. And, you know, he said, we don't need a union. You know, we don't want a union here. Well, why doesn't he? Because he wants to be able to take advantage of the Starbucks baristas. And that's why they're fighting so hard to try and form an their union, Starbucks Workers United. So you you guys were were calling for something though more. I mean, more than just trade unionism, more than just let's get a better deal or whatever. You you know you were calling for an end to capitalism, like you are right now. Um, and uh, you know, so why did you you know why did you choose the trade unions as a place to do this? Why did you choose? Hey, let's go. Um, you know, into a union factory or, or, you know, did you go to non-union factories as well? Let me ask you that. 
Well, no, the first factory was a very, you know, weak union uh, in, in where we were making the uh, paint trays. But I had heard workers there talk about those crazy militants at American Motors, which was an auto factory that most of your listeners are probably too young to remember in Milwaukee. It was a big factory at that time, thousands of people on the assembly line. And what I heard people talking about was those guys are so crazy that in 1969, they had 13 wildcat strikes in one week. So (laughs) Kenosha and Milwaukee, the two plant assembly plant locations, the workers had walked out on wildcat strikes. So a wildcat is when you're not sanctioned by the national union. You just kind of go out on your own. Exactly. You're not sanctioned by the international and you're breaking the contract, basically. Yeah. You know, but the union was so strong there that people, when the union said walk out, you walked out. And if the union said come back to work, you went back. And if an hour later the grievance wasn't resolved, you walked out again. Those were the days when we used to fight out the grievance right on the shop floor. There was none of this business unionism where it goes up through the grievance procedure and a business rep handles it. No, we were handling those things right on the shop floor, battling it out with supervisors. And the reason that I chose American Motors was also because there were so many young Vietnam vets who were working there particularly vets of color. And they had come back from Vietnam angry, feeling like they had been mistreated, and they weren't going to take any shit from the system. They used to say, no cracker boss is going to tell me what to do. (laughs) I just spent two years in the jungles in Vietnam. And they meant it, you know, and they were ready for a lot more than just trade union organization. We were very active at that time in supporting three Panthers in Milwaukee who had been framed on murder charges. You know, they were claimed that they had shot a cop. But in fact, it, it just wasn't true. And the cops were at war with the black community. They used to ride through the black community with shotguns out the windows, four to a car, the tactical squad. Oh, my God. And the tactical squad is who had gone after the Panthers. So, you know, when I got fired for the first time in American Motors after about nine months, part of the reason they fired me was they spread the rumor that I had been active with a hate group, the Black Panther Party. Oh, my God. They used that as one of the pretexts of why people should be afraid of me. Now, people weren't really afraid of me because they worked with me every day. And I used to stand out in front of the plant selling the Milwaukee Worker, which was a, you know, socialist newspaper that made no bones about, you know, calling for the change in the capitalist system. And people knew that I was a square shooter because I had led a number of really militant job actions within that first nine months in the factory. You know, and I'll talk about them briefly just because it's important. You can't just talk about politics. You can't go to the front of a plant and sell a socialist paper and expect people to change. They've got to see you on a daily basis and they learn from the collective action that you engage them in. So within those first couple of months, 
the the management came around and they notified us that we would work on a Saturday. Well, needless to say, none of us young guys wanted to lose our party time on Friday night and have to get up to go to work on a Saturday. But I said, let me go look at this the, the contract. And of course, like most places, you don't have a contract. You got to dig one up. And I found in there that you all overtime was voluntary. So I went to the Xerox store. For your listeners who don't know what that means, it's a copy <laughs> store. <laughs> and I made a lot of copies of that page of the contract. And the next morning, I passed it out to the young guys I had been hanging out with after work at the bar and socially on the weekends. And it was like there was like assembly line grapevine that the word spread. We don't have to work. It's voluntary overtime. So when that foreman actually came through with the steward on Friday to notify you of overtime, virtually everyone was yelling, I'm not working no Saturday. You know, I got my time. It's mine. And also we talked about why should we work overtime? when there's unemployed workers on the street, a basic union principle that used to motivate unions in those days, which was we defend the unemployed by helping to create more jobs for them. So the word started to spread that the president of the union, a guy named Bertie Lapinka, was blaming me for the Saturday loss in production because he had promised the company he would get them a workforce because they were selling a lot of new models and they wanted to get more cars out. So I knew that he had my number and I decided we had to get more organized. So the company came around and they notified us that there would be a line speed up, three more cars an hour with no change in our job assignments. Well, if you've ever worked on an assembly line, your listeners will know that additional work can break you, literally. So we this for the first time, I said, we got to be organized. And we called a meeting and we, we decided to call it a caucus in the union. And probably about 10 or a dozen people showed up. A lot of them were, you know, Latino, Puerto Rican, Vietnam vet you know, two other black guys who were Vietnam vets, some black women who were church women and had a sense of community and organization and a, and a couple others. And we said, let's fight this speed up. Let's put out our first flyer at the gates that says fight speed up. You only have to work at a normal pace. So we handed that out and it was like we lit a flame under everyone because People started to slow down. The older guys taught us you ride the line, which means you do your job, even if it takes you 20 or 30 feet outside of your work, past your workstation. And that pushes the next person down the line, which pushes the next person down the line. And the cars weren't getting built. Everybody was just throwing their parts into the car. Me, I was supposed to put in taillights. I'd put in one side of the car, couldn't get it done. I throw the other set of taillights into the car. So, <laughs> I'm sure they loved you. <laughs> so this is going on all over the assembly line. So we had a meeting that night and we said, we got to do more. What can we do? And one of the guys said, let's make T-shirts that have a big red stop sign on them. And they say, 
they say fight speed up. That night we went to my house with an old fashioned silk screen and a squeegee and we started pumping out t-shirts and we brought them in the next day. There were maybe 25 or 30 people were wearing, buying them and wearing them like crazy. Next day we went that night, we went back and we made up more like a hundred of them. So the next day the company comes around and they said, anybody wearing a t-shirt is going to be fired tomorrow. We stopped this when people were wearing black power t-shirts three years ago, and we're going to stop it just like we did that. So I was a little nervous because I, you know, I didn't want to get everybody fired. And all of a sudden my steward comes up and says, can I buy a shirt? And my chief steward, who's the over all the stewards in my department comes up and says, I want a t-shirt. And the vice president of the union comes up and wants a t-shirt. And they all went around and said, we're wearing in shirts tomorrow. We dare the company to fire us. Oh, wow. Change the mood. We ran home. We were making t-shirts till late that night. And I learned a very important lesson for listeners, which is being a young guy back then, I don't know if it was the yip, the hippies or who it was that came up with. You can't trust anyone over 30. And that's kind of what I believe. You know, these guys were all older guys, older than me. I was only 21. And, you know, there are they're kind of bureaucrats and they're not going to really stand with us. Well, they did, because you can make tactical alliances over particular issues. Doesn't mean they're going to join the caucus or they're going to go all the way with us. But it meant that they were going to fight that speed up. And we were the ones that were making the paraphernalia that was motivating people to fight the speed up. Long and short of it is the company took work off of every one of our jobs, had to hire new people, and we won that battle. We won it, but then word really came out that the company was going to get rid of me. And it spread through the whole plant. And it also spread through the plant that the international union and the president of the local had okayed my discharge. Let, let me, let's come back to that. I, w- I want to go back a little bit here if I can. Um, so, you know, for our Fight Back Radio listeners, people may not recognize the name American Motors. Uh, at that time, almost all the cars in the United States, with a few exceptions, were uh, American made. Um, the big three, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler, made was the, were the big three. They made the most of them. But the uh, American Motors was a large number four, as I recall at that time. And um, I, I want to talk just a minute, if you could, uh, um, you know, because when you went to work at the factory in Milwaukee, th- this was one of the the best union contracts in the country. The fact you had voluntary overtime, there was, you know, you're going to get into a little bit here. I know uh, about what happened to you and the, the ability to strike over at times when others couldn't. But uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, before they were American Motors, they were the, the Nash, I think the Nash Auto Co- Company or something like that. And there was a, you know, so this didn't just this good contract just didn't wasn't good luck it didn't just drop from the sky there were people that actually fought um to make that contract happen people that were similar to you probably um you know maybe decades earlier could you talk a little bit about the history about what led to american motors being this this thing in milwaukee and kenosha that it was at the time you arrived yeah i'm i'm really glad that you raised that point because in my book 
there's a uh, photograph of a newsletter called the Nash Worker, which was put out by the Communist Party USA. And it called for the formation of grievance committees, fighting of speed up. So a lot of those early organizers were communists and socialists and radicals and left wingers. And they were really some badass guys. You know, the, the, mo- the best story was, and people don't really realize this historically, was that the chief steward, his name was Paul Russo, was collecting money for a guy whose house had burned down. And he was told to go back on his job. And he said, no, I'm the chief steward and I'm collecting money for a brother whose house burned down. So the company fired him. Right away, everyone sat down. And they sat down in the trim department. Then they sat down in the whole Nash plant and it spread to Racine, it spread to Milwaukee. And they won the very first contract it was one page contract in auto. And it was oh the first God. sit down before the Flint sit down. It was 1933. So, it was so four just, years before it. Yeah, that's I'm right. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Yeah. So it gives you a sense. And as it developed, they carved out the most protective working agreement in the UAW. We had one steward for every 35 employees on the assembly line. And as a steward, you only had to work a half hour a day. If you said, I got union business, they had to get you off the job. There was just an army of stewards everywhere, policing the contract, you know, hanging out where the foremen were harassing people. We, As you said, we had the right to strike over all grievances and we had voluntary overtime. And in my book, Fighting Times, which I hope some of your listeners will decide to buy, it talks about how Walter Ruther gave up each one of those three rights at the big three auto companies in exchange for vacation time, cost of living, better wages, all of those kind of economic benefits. But he threw away the rights on the shop floor, which really deprived the rank and file workers of their tool to fight the company through the use of collective action. So most people look at Walter Ruther as this, oh, he's this union god. But the truth is he had his own agenda and it was to take away the power of the local unions. But they could never do it at American Motors because there were too many radicals. And every time the international tried to intervene, they just couldn't. People just refused to listen to them. And that's why those unions had such a militant history that I was very lucky to be part of. It wasn't like we created it with our caucus. It was like we took advantage of it with our caucus. Well, it sounds like you were bringing some stuff back too. Uh, you know, Ruther had some, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong. You know, he, he had, he was victorious in other parts of the United Auto Workers, but uh, at AMC, even there, it started, you probably started to erode a little bit when you came, you and, uh, you know, John Drew and, and Todd Olston came in and others uh, with that caucus, uh, you started to revive what was already there. And maybe some of the older workers remembered that. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, that's very true. I mean, with with the, with John and Todd, we put out a newsletter called Fighting Times, which really um, was very militant, very um, hard hitting and biting. And it 
tried to instill in people the need for continuing this collective action on a regular basis. For instance, there was a, when a car comes down the assembly line in the welding department, there's what's called a wheel chuck, which is means that there's a little guard in front of the wheel so that your foot doesn't get run over by this very heavy chuck with a body frame on it. They company hadn't fixed it. Maintenance hadn't come to do anything. So the guys put a note on one of the cars and said, nine o'clock, that's it. Well, when nine o'clock break came, they all went and sat down and nobody went back to work. And the foreman threatened to fire him. The chief steward came over and he said, until you get that chuck fixed right here, right now, these guys don't work. And they brought in skilled tradesmen and they fixed the chuck. Well, there's a lot to learn from that lesson. The power of collective action, the willingness of a union chief steward to stand up to the company and to stand with the workers. And that's what we tried to do throughout the plant. And a big part of it, this is really important. We saw two prongs for our work with fighting times. One was fighting racism and discrimination, both by the union and the company. And the other was fighting misogyny, also by the company and the union. And those two fights were crucial to what we did. One example would be that we were asked to come to Tupelo, Mississippi in about, um, I think it was the early 80s, by the United League of Mississippi, which was a black organization. And the KKK had become reactive in Tupelo, Mississippi. And the cops had been brutalizing young black boys and men. So we, along with other comrades in the in Milwaukee area, filled a busload of workers to go down and join this march on the Labor Day weekend. Well, we decided to put out a leaflet to all 7,500 workers at the AMC plant in Kenosha saying, hey, if you want to join this bus, you know, to go with us to fight the Klan, sign up and we're inviting you to come. Well, you know, that not everybody agreed, you know, I mean, there were guys who felt like, hey, you know, there were some supporters of the Klan, actually. We went down there and <laughs> in my book, there's some pictures. We got there and we bus pulled up in front of the Tupelo Police Department and out marched 20 Klansmen in hoods and white robes, and they were the police. So the police were the Klan, and the Klan yep. were the police. Yep. So, you know, I've got the picture of them walking out with axe handles and their pockets, they've got pistols, and that's who we were fighting. When we got back to the plant, we, we did a whole report on going to Tupelo for both the white workers and the black workers and all the workers. and. You know, there was some pushback. Not everybody agreed. And it probably wasn't too long after that, that I was sitting in a bar across the street from work after work. And I felt something sticking in my side. And I looked down, it was a 38. And the guy says to me, my name is Deadeye DiMarino. And I'm in the White People's Nationalist Socialist Party. I'm a Nazi. 
And I don't like your fighting times. And I don't like your Jewish commie bullshit. And, you know, I said, wow, what, what, what do you do when the guy's got a gun in your belly? So I called over the bartender. And I said, double shots for both of us. And we shot those double shots again. So I started talking to Deadeye and I said, Deadeye, in your department, he was in the maintenance department driving fork trucks. I said, didn't we just support a work stoppage that you guys engaged in because they fired one of your stewards? Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, wait, if we did that, what's so bad about us? He said, well, that's okay. I guess, you know, the fighting times is okay. It's your other stuff. I said, what other stuff? Whatever you want to talk to me about, ask me about it because I'm a politically open book. And you don't want to get shot. <laughs> but mainly the liquor solved that problem. Because after three hours, he was hugging me and saying, Union brother, I'm behind you. And for the rest of my time in American Motors, he'd walk by. He didn't hand out flyers with us, but he'd give me a nod. You know, <laughs> you're in the union. And so am I. Okay. So. That brings me to I want to make a, just a quick point, and then I sure. jump in. But that point is when Hillary Clinton called working class people a basket of deplorables. Those are the guys she was talking about. And those guys are not to be written off. Those guys can be won over to our side. If you work with them on a regular daily basis, if you fight the issues that they're worried about, they will come over to our side. A lot of them went to Trump because they didn't see the Democratic Party doing that. We've got to, you know, we've got to be out there fighting for the issues that matter to them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you and you talked about, you know, this is in the I, I actually the book, I think, is quite good at going through some different stories of things you did. Um the, the you know after the the riding the line you know the stop the speed up stuff though you you became targeted too there was a a campaign uh, that led to you and a guy named Al Guzman I think um, uh, could you talk a little bit about that and uh, and I think it also relates back to this issue about uh, um, you know being able to strike over grievances yeah it does it does directly and his name you're right very good memory was Al Guzman. Um, I, on my website, which is jonathanmelrod.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, melrod.com. Everybody should check that out. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes as well. <laughs> Thank you. There, there's, I posted a couple hundred pages from my FBI file. It's really interesting because what it reveals is that when we were doing all this fighting on the shop floor, American Motors ran to the FBI like they were their own private detective agency. And they said, wait a minute, we're having all these problems with this guy, Melrod. What should we do about it? And the FBI came back and said, oh, you got to get rid of Melrod. This kind of thing is going on in, in a number of plants in the city, one of them being where you once worked at um, Briggs and Stratton. Mm -hmm. yep. And they're putting out the same kind of literature and they're, you know, agitating workers in the same way. Well, in that report, they also told American Motors, we think there was a guy who worked at Briggs and Stratton who was part of this organization, and you should fire him too. His name was Al Guzman. 
And he hadn't he hadn't been involved in it. He had just been involved in fighting speed up. He was kind of a collateral damage. So when they hauled me out of the plant physically and I wouldn't leave. So they had to drag me down the aisle with a lot of guys shouting, let's sit down. And the union stewards that were loyal to the president sort of keeping them working. You know, they fired Al Guzman as well, which was really not good. He had two young kids. And I had a tough decision to make. There was arbitration in our contract, or there was the final step of the grievance procedure, which was taking a strike vote. And if that didn't pressure the company into settling the grievance, actually going on strike. And there was an older white guy who had been the chief steward of the whole factory in Milwaukee. He was, people used to say, if you pray to God and he won't deliver, go to Bill Brunton and he'll get it done. Because <laughs> Bill Brunton was so powerful. You know, he led so many walkouts, so many work stoppages. So Bill Brunton came up to me and said, you know what, brother? We didn't support you enough when you were in the factory. We want to support you. I'm going to get a group of guys. We're going to put out a flyer and we're going to say that we should get behind you. And he said, don't ever go to arbitration. Let your own people settle this dispute. Believe in the other workers. So he put out a flyer calling for a strike vote. We put out a flyer calling for a strike vote at a membership meeting and a caucus of black workers in black being black and white, getting it together, put out a flyer. So when the union meeting came, it was full house packed in a big hall. And the international rep spoke and said, well, you know, the internationals decided that Melrod is really a troublemaker and we've taken his grievance as far as we can and don't risk your jobs for him. And a lot of the black workers were booing and yelling Uncle Tom at him. And then I got up and spoke and I said, look, what's at stake here isn't my politics. They fired me for being a union militant. And if people let me get fired, no one is protected in this union. The vote came. The president of the union had one of those clickers and he was clicking, counting the votes. And at the end, he said, this goddamn thing isn't working. He threw it down. Well, clearly he didn't get the vote total he wanted. And he said, let's let's do a voice vote. Even though we clearly won the voice vote, he said, motion does not carry. No moving the grievance forward to a strike meeting. And when we looked in the back of the room, there was police lining the wall because he knew there was going to be trouble. So we lost that. But I didn't stop. I uh, went to the National Labor Relations Board that then filed a really blistering complaint against AMC. I was really quite shocked, blaming them of McCarthyism and using red baiting to get rid of me. And I was out of the shop for about two and a half years before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals finally ordered me reinstated. And the company decided they weren't going to take it to the Supreme Court, which would have been fairly ridiculous. Um, So I I got back to work. You know, but in that time before that, I I had a great chance to learn a lot about other industries in Milwaukee. You know, I worked at a tannery that was non-union. I worked at a steel fabrication plant 
where we had a caucus that led an eight-week strike. And that strike is really educational because that wasn't a strong union. That was more like a business union. And when we went on strike, we called for a rally at midnight. And there were hundreds of guys that came out to rally. And there was excitement. You had walked out. You would challenge the boss. And the union was nowhere to be found. It was wow. basically young guys. So it was midnight because uh, the contract expired at midnight. The contract expired at midnight. And a lot of the guys who were in the caucus were these kind of rednecky guys that had all, were all driving big muscle cars. And we used to fight endlessly about racism because they were pretty racist. In fact, at one point, one of them hit me. He was about six foot five and I'm about five foot six <laughs> and <laughs> sent me flying off a bar stool because I kept saying, stop using the N word in front of me. I don't give a shit what's in your heart, but I don't want to hear it. And I finally molded them into a caucus. Well, only because we'd go to their house after the bar shut down, we drink, play cards. And then we, <laughs> you know, when the first shift came in. So they, they, they were really a militant core of this strike. And we started putting out strike bulletins because the union didn't do it. The union, again, was nowhere to be found. So we started blocking Teamster trucks. We went to the Teamster depot. We got the Teamsters to agree not to cross our picket lines. And then when supervisors tried to come across the picket lines, we threw down sharpened tacks so that the tires of the trucks would go, would, you know, let the air out. And when they repossessed one of the strikers' cars, Eibolt's car, which was a cherry Trans Am, bright red, and it was demoralizing because the young guy said, okay, Melrose. So this is one of the guys that was on strike. He was having trouble making payments because he didn't have an, an income, and they repossessed his car at that time. Precisely. Our strike benefits were only $25 a week, um, which in these, today's terms is $100 a week. So that doesn't even pay your, you know, your food yeah. bill. Anyway, they, he, he went to court and the judge ordered a repossession of his car. And it was a pretty demoralizing blow. And I thought to myself, how am I going to turn around this situation of demoralization? So we put out a flyer calling for a picket line in front of GMAC, which is the financial arm of GM. And about 70 people showed up. Interestingly, 15 of them were black meat cutters who were on strike at the same time. So then for all these guys that have been talking about blacks, they see that these black guys are out there with us fighting GMAC to get Eyebolt's car back. So three of us went into the office of the manager and we said, uh, we're here to get Eyebolt's keys back. And he said, no, I'm not going to give you the keys back. The judge ordered him the car repossessed. And we said, we don't give a goddamn what the judge said or what you said, because if we don't get the keys in five minutes, all 70 of those people are going to be sitting in your office and we're not leaving till we walk away with Eyebolt's keys. At that point, he gave us the keys. We went outside and it was a huge rush that that made everybody feel like we can win. We're together. Interestingly enough, the same guys who had been talking racist bullshit agreed to go to walk the picket line of all the black meat cutter strikers the next week. And it changed their consciousness. The fact that we had created unity around issues that were common to both of us 
really changed the consciousness. It developed a class consciousness rather than just a consciousness. I'm in one factory. It was looking out for each other, be it black, be it white, be it a meat cutter, be it a steel worker. And that's key to building the union movement. No, that's that's a very important lesson. Yes. And, and yes, seeing a class consciousness rather than just what's in it for me or what do I get out of it? I, I want to um, move forward, though, again. Uh, uh, so you got your job back at AMC. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, running for union office. So you went from just like the, the radical communist passing out the, the, you know, the, the worker at the plant or selling the worker, passing out your newsletter to uh, actually you ran for steward. Eventually you became the chief steward. Um, how do you view um, union office? As, and is that like the natural progression of being a, a labor militant or is, is there a compromise in that? How, how do you view the, the you know, be, being a, a union official, even if it's a low level one? Yeah, no, I think it's an important vehicle for building the workers' struggle. It's not the end all, it's not the final goal, but it is gives you power to be able to lead people in direct action and to show them that you got the guts to stand up to the company. And when I was elected steward, I was militant steward. I might get into arguments with the supervisors on the assembly line and everybody within a hundred yards could hear the battle going on. And it really gave people a sense that, hey, this guy might be kind of left-wing politically, but he's got some guts and he's a union man. It wasn't too long after that that I got elected department chairman, which every department had its own union meetings, which was a great position because I put out the agendas and I decided what we talk about every week. If we have time, I'll go back and talk about a fight against a racist chief steward where we took him on at a department meeting. But after that, I was overwhelmingly elected chief steward. But it wasn't just me getting elected. We put together a slate. And out of the 12 stewards in that department on days, 10 of them were from our caucus. They were young black women, young white women, black workers and white militant workers. And that immediately changed how people viewed the union. They saw it as not a bunch. When we first got there, it was a bunch of old white guys you know, who didn't bother doing anything. They just get off their job and go sit up in the office and hang out. Well, now, you know, I was the chief and I said to people every day, walk your line, say hi to every person, find out if they've got any issues. And that's what we did. And the union became increasingly strong. Eventually in uh, 84, I was elected to the bargaining committee, the executive board, and four of us who had been militant together, John and Todd, who you mentioned earlier, and another young guy named Rosinski, we were all on the bargaining committee and were in the position to bargain the contract with Raynaud in 1985. And if I can answer your question, does it compromise your position? You can't always get everything that you want. As long as there's capitalism, and you're in the union, you can fight as hard as hell, but at a certain point, you may not be able to get everything that you're in your demands. And what happened was that Renault, the French automaker, purchased a 
51% interest in American Motors. And they told us that we had to make certain concessions or they would move the production back to France. Well, we were pretty educated. We used to read a lot in the Wall Street Journal and automotive news. And the fact of the matter was they could make the car cheaper and ship it over to the United States. So in the end, we were left with a choice. Do we concede certain things like our legacy, steward ratio, voluntary overtime, and right to strike, and save the pensions of some 18,000 workers and their families? Do we win the rights for workers to be able to transfer to other factories because Chrysler eventually bought AMC and everybody was able to finish out their 30 years? And as Rudy, who was the president of the union, was a real old school militant, he got up in front of the membership and he said, look, we fought as hard as we could. We battled as hard as we could. I'm asking you to vote. Is it better to have a contract that's like the big three or no job at all? So we had to make that compromise. We had to get up in front of the membership and tell them we were voting for those concessions because at a certain point, you had to look out for people's day-to-day livelihood. That's the limitation of a union, but you've got to recognize that limitation. So yes, there is certain times when you're forced into a position that you don't theoretically want to be in. Well, let let me ask you then also about uh, and and that's helpful. Thank you for that. Um, and that's hard for sure. I mean, because it's easier to be the, the pure or whatever. But if you if you're in the real world, it always isn't like that. Um, so I mean, you were trying to build a revolutionary organization through this whole time period, which to overthrow capitalism. Um, you were also you know a, 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 an officer or a militant in your union trying to build class struggle in the union. Um, and then you had this um, caucus, uh, the Fighting Times caucus. I, I don't know if that's what you called it, but that was a newsletter. Um, what was the unity or the politics of the caucus, of the people that you worked with in the factory on a day-in, day-out basis? And, um, you know, uh, what, what did, you know was, what, was that somewhere in between or did that, you know, how, how did that look exactly? Yeah, the caucus, the caucus was much broader than just a membership caucus. It was more like a movement. We used to sell blue nylon jackets, United Workers Caucus, UAW Local 72. And when we when we would go out to the gates to hand out the fighting times, there would be literally dozens of people that would stop, help for a little while, talk for a little while. But most of them weren't going to become revolutionaries, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. So we all, they all recognized that there were people who had different politics in the caucus. You know, there was me, there was, you know, a steward who just wanted to be a steward. So we consciously didn't make people have some sort of left-wing ideology to be part of the rank-and-file caucus. At the same time, you know, like you said, I used to sell the worker newspaper. So people did see me as having a political message that went broader and further than that of the caucus. And, you know, there were 
you know, I used to sell regularly just in my area of the shop, a hundred newspapers. So it wasn't like just a few, you know, people were, were reading it. And it was really a shame when it stopped being published because it kind of left us without a tool to show people there was a broader class struggle that was international. There wasn't just class consciousness within the United States, but we were teaching people that they were part of Reno. And we, I'll never forget the newsletter that came out had an octopus with a beret and Reno on it. And it had a car with its tentacle in Spain, in France, in Canada, and in Kenosha. And we were saying to people, we're now part of an international working class at Renault. And Todd and I went to the first conference, world conference of Renault workers. And there were 37 representatives from, I believe it was 13 countries. And we came back and we put out, I think it was reports in three issues of the Fighting Times that reported on those meetings. So people were really, I mean, at one point, a chief steward at a Renault plant in Belgium lost his job and a thousand people right away signed a petition that he'd be rehired, you know, and that, you know, that guy was in Belgium. That's incredible. Wow. I mean, and, and, and those those people, I think it was the CGT uh, in France, uh, um, as we're recording right now, there's a general strike there where they're 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 in the leadership of it along with with others. But, uh, you know, trying to fight uh, against, uh, um, you know, the, whatever they're trying to make the pensions, uh, make them work longer before they can retire. Um, but but the, the, let me go back to the, the the fighting times. There was again there was there was repression there. You were you were brought you know there, you were sued um, for uh, uh, you know. Well, why don't you tell the story a little bit? It's scab of the month column, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, yeah. Right. We. So I don't know who came up with this idea of scab of the month, but it was a way to really go after the particularly foreman who engaged in particularly egregious behavior. I mean, one example I'll just give you. There was a supervisor named Stevie Freeman, and he would go every day, every night, he'd brush back against a 40 or 50-year-old woman's behind. And when she complained to the superintendent, superintendent told him to apologize, but he kept doing it. And he would say, I can do it whenever I want, as long as I apologize. And then he went up to a black guy and he said, you're a lazy motherfucking N-word. Okay, and then he threw a 35 pound air gun at the black guy and he went up to two black women and he made his hands into like a gun with his thumb and his finger extended. And he said, bang, bang, two dead blackbirds and then said to one of them, you know, I'd like you better, except you're kind of flat chested. So we just tore into Oh, my Lord. We tore into him and seven stewards would follow him around like they were puppy dogs, not giving him a moment's peace. And one of our other rights was if a supervisor picked up so much as a screw, which was union work, we could write them up for an hour's pay. And the worker who wrote him up got paid for an hour. So we'd have everybody writing him up. If he just if he picked up a piece of toilet paper, he would get written up. <laughs> and, you know, petitions were signed and stickers went up on the walls. You know, Steve Freeman, scab of the month. Well, we got him fired. You know, the Fair Employment Practices Committee 
which John Drew is on, um, came in, investigated, and they made the company discharge him. Well, that's good. I mean, that's I mean, if treating women like that and, and, and members and, and that kind of racism. I mean, that's that's a good thing. Well, yeah, it was a great thing. And it really showed people what we were about and what power they had. Um, but we, the five foremen and a foreman's kid, superintendent's kid, filed a defamation lawsuit against us, Todd, John, and myself, for $4.2 million. We didn't really pay much attention to it. We thought it was kind of a joke. We don't have $4.2 million until the court date got set. And we realized, wow, this thing is real. And we started hustling. We got a great lawyer um, who my father helped us secure. And he came out there and he turned us into real union, I mean, paralegals. We lined up some 57 witnesses who could attest to the veracity of every article in the Fighting Times. And we put them up on the stand. And one of them had been the former girlfriend of Steve Freeman. And she told the jury about when she didn't want to have sex with him. And he put a shotgun to her head. Oh, my God. And he used to raise beagle puppies. And he gave her the runt of the of the litter. When she wouldn't, again, have sex with him, he took her puppy, the runt of the litter, and he snapped its neck. Oh, my God. And you looked over and the jury, half of them were in tears. The court reporter was breaking down in tears. And we had known that the jury was the key to us being able to beat the company because the judge sided constantly with the company well, the lawyer the company was paying for. They surreptitiously orchestrated and paid for this lawsuit. In the end, the judge found on a legal technicality that we had defamed two of the four supervisors or the, one of the supervisors and one of the superintendent's kids. On these minor, we had said that one of them wasn't at all trained. And the judge said, well, you could have said he wasn't fully trained. But you defamed him by saying he wasn't at all trained. Well, the jury came back in and it only took them a couple hours. They came back in and they said no award of any damages and money, you know, which meant that we won the case. The NLB then sued American Motors and they had to pay up. I think it was three hundred and twenty thousand dollars in our back wages and fees to our attorneys. So oh, we won victory, that. Yeah. And people went crazy when we called into the plant to the chief stewards on the second shift just cheers were up and down the assembly line because we had made it we had been out there in front of the gates collecting money to support the lawyers that we were we were hiring and it became everybody's fight you know the the, the buttons everyone wore said you know save the fighting times defend free speech oh that's wonderful that's wonderful um we're we're starting to run out of time here, and it's unfortunate because I could I, I I have a whole bunch more I'd like to talk to you about. But let let me encourage our our fight back radio listeners. You're gonna be in a couple of cities, uh, and hopefully, if if you're nearby, uh, I want to tell people to uh, 
to make sure that they stop and see uh, Jonathan Melrod. Also, make sure you buy the book, uh, Fighting Times. I will put in the show notes how you can uh, buy it and where these uh, where he's going to be. But he's going to be uh, um, at, in, here in Chicago at the Pilsen Community Books on uh, April 17th at 7 o'clock. He'll be at uh, uh, Boswell's in uh, Milwaukee uh, at 6.30 on April 19th. And then um, in, uh, I think it's in San Francisco at the Green Apple on May 1st, uh, which is May Day. And it'll be the, May Day is the one year anniversary of Fight Back Radio. So that's uh, another, uh, no, no, no relationship to it, but just, uh, I had to throw that in there because it's our, our show. Um, but yes, uh, unfortunately, our time that went quick. Uh, we're winding down here. Is there anything, uh, you want to add, John, uh, that we, that we didn't cover here or anything you would like to, to say to our viewers? Yeah, I would just like to say briefly that one of the most inspiring things about releasing the book for me has been the number of young people who have bought who have bought the book and have sent me notes on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, saying how inspired they were. One woman called me and said, I read a chapter and then I take notes because I go in and use this to help organize. And I've been on five podcasts with one of the key organizers for the Starbucks union in the Boston area. So it's been really rewarding to see these young people be inspired by these lessons. I guess I'm considered old and a veteran of the struggle. And, you know, I think that everybody gains something from the book, whether it's your memories of the 60s and 70s or whether you're trying to organize Starbucks. It's well worthwhile. And up until May 2nd, there's a 40% discount on the book. If you go to my webpage on the landing page, it'll take you right to the publisher. And if you add the code fighting, then you get 40% off before May 2nd. So thanks for having me on. Congratulations on your one-year anniversary. And I wish we had another hour. I do too. We'll, we'll, we'll have to have you back sometime. And we'll put all that information in the show notes to the website, uh, jonathanmelrod.com. And, uh, the, uh, the Facebook is, uh, Fighting Times, uh, book, uh, Fighting Times book. Um, but yes, thank you so much, John, for being on, on the podcast. Uh, uh, it's a real joy. So thank you. Right. Thanks for your time. So it's John Melrod. Uh, so I, I encourage people to, uh, uh, if you're in this or near the cities where John is doing his tour, to to check that out. Um, it's uh, I think you'll enjoy hearing him uh, speak in person. Uh, so that was uh, John Melrod, and uh, hopefully you'll uh, buy the book, uh, go to see him if you're in one of the cities near where he is. We'll put in the show notes uh, how you can get the book and uh, where he'll be at what times and uh, and such like that. So. Uh, also, I, I want to, before we sign off today, I want to uh, let people know we, we're, we're a couple weeks out from uh, International Workers Day, May Day. And whatever city you're in, uh, we encourage you to, uh, uh, to participate in, in May Day. Uh, here in Chicago, we're going to have a march at Union Park, 1 o'clock. Uh, but at whatever city you're in, there's something going on. Uh, you can check with uh, uh, Fight Back. Um, you know, fight back news to find out where things are going on or Freedom Road or, or what other other groups you're involved with. Ask them and say, hey, what's going on with Mady? Why aren't we involved in that? Because this is the day where working class people can put, put forward their protests. And uh, um, and so and to say, you know, let's let's put our struggles together. It's it's an important day, I think, for all of us. So I encourage 
uh, everybody to participate in uh, May Day. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, May Day will also mark the anniversary, one year anniversary of uh, Fight Back Radio. So uh, give us a present. If you haven't already, subscribe or follow Fight Back Radio. Give us a quick review. Um, it helps people find us, and so we, we appreciate that for sure. Um, before I leave, I want to give our production team, which uh, just uh, does a, a fabulous job, a, a dope job, I would say. Uh, Dodd McColgan, Vince, uh, Tr- uh, Vince Olson, and Shane Tremley are our production team. And uh, I'm Richard Berg for the entire Fight Back Radio team. Stay until next time. All power to the people. I think we're out now. So, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I thought that was good. I enjoyed it. Uh, I could have went, you know, whatever. I, I didn't get, I didn't get into. I probably had you looking out to see what happened with the the UAW today. I didn't get into any of that, but it was. Yeah. We could have just kept going. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll try to stop and see you when you're in Chicago. I'm. Yeah, I hope you do. Yeah, um, yeah, and I'll pass the word as well to people. Yeah, and know. I'll be really curious when you do air the podcast on that Saturday. You know, if do you get much feedback from people? Um, some, you know, not actually. I get <laughs> people that I, um, you know, people I know will tell me about each podcast or whatever I solicit it. Um, I get a few emails, you know, because I, I announce the, the email now and again, um, but not not a lot to be yeah. to be quite honest. Not like uh, waves of them. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, but I'll let you, I'll let you know, yeah, you know, what, what people say for about. sure. Yeah. And, uh, um, cause yeah, I, I mean, what I do is I, 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 you know, I solicit, uh, what can we do to make it better? Cause I'm new at this too, you know, and what people think, uh, you're doing pretty, let me, believe me, I've been on 25 podcasts and your questioning and leading the discussion is quite fluent. Okay, well, thank you. That's uh, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm I, I knew the. I knew. I. I mean, I read the book, but I. I also. I, I don't know if I. I. I came into Milwaukee about a third of the way into the book. So I remember some of the. I mean, I went to Tupelo as well, and uh, so I remember some of that. Um, but yeah. Uh, so and 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 also it was all you guys. It was you, but it was like uh, I don't know, like you know uh, Johnny Rose and a bunch of all oh, you know Lori, um, that you actually. You know, trained me to be thinking. You know, I went into the labor movement as well. I worked, you know, uh, as a teamster for twenty years, and um, you know, Is that it was, enough to get you a decent pension. No, because I worked uh, like an idiot. Uh, well, not like an idiot, but like uh, uh, like what I did, like a lot of other people had to do. I worked at the University of Chicago Medical Center. That's where I was. I was uh, in housekeeping there. Yeah. And um, uh, so we, our, the pension stunk. It's a not-for-profit university, so it's not a public sector job. And um, you know, I, I'm okay though. I mean, I mean, I'm not. You know, whatever. I'm still working because of all, some of that. But uh, uh, my wife had a good job. We don't have any kids, so you know, we, I've been saving. You know, and so we'll get by. But uh, it's you know a lot better than other you know my coworkers you know are, are uh, from the, those days. A lot of them are not as well off. I talk to them now and again, and uh, you know a lot of them. A lot of them went back to the you know they're for, you know a lot of them were black and they went back to the south. Yeah, because they could yeah. live cheaper there, and their family might take care of them in the south and things like that. It's so a pretty it's, big migration, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, uh you know people's some people have you know a little plot of land they 
you know, buy a mobile home and put it on there and, you know, whatever it's like you're living, but it's not, you know, whatever, it's not high living. I'll say that. So, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely will pass the word about this. I'm looking, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I, this is, uh, this was, this was good. I, I enjoyed this. So I did too. Um, all right. My wife just got home, so I got to help her take the groceries out of the car. Yeah, not a problem. Not a problem. We'll talk to you later then. Thanks, Richard. I love Yep. Yep. Bye-bye.